to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and fishing luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I am your host, Michael Jones. In this episode, we welcome a fishing guide and luminary and very close friend, Carter Davidson. Carter Davidson is an avid fly fisherman and has worked as a producer of outdoor adventure television programs, documentaries, and is the executive producer of Grey Coast Productions. Carter was raised in the western mountains of Maine in the mountain village town of Bethel, located on the banks of the Androscoggin River. Beginning in 2000, Carter got his start with Maine Public Broadcasting, producing and editing a long list of Emmy-nominated magazine series and documentaries. Later, he traveled across the globe to locations such as New Zealand, France, Argentina, Chile, and British Columbia to film all sorts of outdoor adventures from extreme skiing, whitewater rafting, kayaking, skydiving, mountain biking, and of course, fly fishing. In 2007, Carter founded the video production company Grey Ghost Productions. Grey Ghost Productions served to launch Carter into fly fishing film production to capture the essence of fly fishing through his creative vision. Carter and his multi-talented wife Sarah live in North Conway, New Hampshire, and are the proud parents of two beautiful humans, their son Miles and their daughter Addie. Carter and Sarah enjoy exploring the rivers and mountains of the surrounding area, both as guides and with friends. Carter's other pursuits include upland bird hunting, fly tying, and whitewater rafting with his drift boat and row frame. Carter can often be found hanging out in the West Forks or descending the Kennebec Gorge with his family and friends. In 2022, the Davidson family successfully descended one of the seven wonders of the world, exploring the Grand Canyon through its entire length. Carter is the regional representative for Liberty Skis in New England and is an exceptional backcountry and inbound skier with vast experience and first-hand knowledge of all of the White Mountains and surrounding backcountry. Carter is widely regarded as the most prolific film producer of Maine fly fishing films and endeavors to capture the magic and unique qualities of the places and people he shares this with. Well, welcome Carter Davidson. Can you hear us all right? Hello, Michael Jones. I can hear you perfectly. When I had the brainchild to uh, do the Flyline podcast, you were definitely on the on the top five of the list, probably more like the top three of the list, and possibly you were actually the guy that I wanted to get on first. So, Oh, that's sweet. Uh, yeah, well, we've done so much of this kind of thing together over the years, and um, you know, it really helps me to work with someone who I, I know and care about. And you also have a great story to tell, Carter. It's not... Uh, you know, it doesn't go without uh, notice that you're definitely made an imprint on the main fly fishing uh, community in, in a lot of different ways. And I just thought it would be so great to kind of open up a conversation where you can kind of explain a little bit more about who you are and you're not just a filmmaker. And, uh, so, But uh, one thing I, I thought of, it might be a good starting point for our listeners to just kind of back up from like a, when you first got out of college before you got to main public uh, broadcasting. What was going on between that those two uh, bookends? Ooh, taking it way back. Uh, that 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 part of my life is a bit of a blur. Um, I went to a couple of colleges in my tenure, if we can call it that. So, uh, graduated from Plymouth State and immediately took the next year off. Uh, moved out to Colorado for a stint, and then wanted to end that twelve months of what I called Carter. Uh, on a bang and did I think I planned for six months in New Zealand and came home maybe around four or five months 
uh, because I ran out of money. And in the middle uh, was when I interviewed with uh, Maine Public Broadcasting uh, and received, I think I received the job while I was in New Zealand at the time. Um, so I needed, I needed to get home in order to start employment, plus I was already out of money. What was the job offering that they were, um, what, was the, what was the candidate that they were looking for? Yeah, production assistant was the job title. Uh, it's, it's the beginning. You know, in, in, in video broadcasting or video production, uh, production assistant is, is the beginning. It's the start. So that's where I cut my teeth, as they say. Tell, how did it go? When did when the job started, and how did the experience begin? Uh, well, I can tell you this: I wish that I had studied film or video when I was in college, because once I got there, I realized right away that storytelling um, was such. Uh, I mean, to say that it was cool just doesn't give it enough. Um, but I gelled with it. I had a great time doing it. Uh, the people that I met along the way. Yeah, definitely. Well, it, you know, I remember, actually, I always like to, to kind of go back to like how we first met. And it, when we first met, that's what you were doing. And uh, you were working uh, with uh, Lou McNally. And uh, I was at the Mallard Mart in Bethel. I had a drift boat attached to the back of my vehicle. You kind of came rolling in and walked right up to me. And we got talking about drift boats and uh, I think at the time we both had raging hard-ons for drift boats. We just thought they were the coolest things on earth. I know I felt that way. And you were explaining to me how you were building uh, your drift boat, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later. Um, sure. But I think within a few days or weeks, if you can correct me on this, uh, you approached me about maybe doing a, an episode with Lou McNally, and we had Kathy Scott and Dave Van Bergel and a few other people involved when we went down uh, the section in Solon and told the story about what drift boats were doing in Maine. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a, a dream segment for me. Um, I mean, landing the, so going back to Maine Public Television, started as a production assistant, worked my way up through associate producer, editor, and then eventually became the series producer for their flagship show called Made in Maine, which was I took that year or two, I think I ran it, uh, as my opportunity to tell all of the cool outdoor stories that I could. Uh, certainly every episode would have a touch of Carter, and that particular one, I think we, we stocked it full, right, from uh, the drift boat sequence. Um, I can't remember if we caught any fish that day. Do you? Do you recall? Did we catch anything on, on the Kennebec that day? Yeah, we actually did. Uh, Kathy caught a a gigantic smallmouth bass <clears throat> on our cane rod. I remember that because we were, right. we could see a fish working and naturally we we're trying to catch trout. But I also remember it was like any other day where it was a bluebird, sun straight overhead, trout were just not going to play. Right. And But it was also a perfect day for shooting. I remember that. And, you know, the interviews went well and we had Bob Dion and it was really fun. And uh, yeah. that's really how you and I first met. And then, you know, obviously that I think, you know, I had made the commitment to marry you at that point. And we, uh, <laughs> we, uh, started fishing together and we, you showed me, you know, the section over, uh, in, um, Shelburne and we, uh, you know, yeah. shoved my boat over the guardrail and, and we did what a lot of people have done that are probably going to listen to this. And it's back in the day when the fishing was great over there. 
Let's talk yeah. about that for a minute. Yeah, well, that put-in is a little bit sweeter today than it used to be. You don't have to go over the guardrail anymore. What is it like? I haven't seen it. Yeah, so instead of guardrail, just just a little bit more river right. They they put in a proper driveway. You do need to back up to a couple of big boulders and then drag it. Um, but it's nothing like that chute of gravel that was just rugged. We're, I think we were belaying it. Technically, we belayed it off of the guardrail. Uh, back in those earlier days, right? Yeah, I remember the drill was you would basically take your anchor line and throw it under the guardrail. The drift boat would go over the guardrail, and someone would go down and use their body weight to slow the boat down as you just shoved it down over the boulders and the ledge down into the river. But yeah. um, that's why we uh, you had a plastic bottom on your boat, and mine were all fiberglass, and planning on selling them after a year or two anyhow so it didn't matter but so you know I mean there's a time stamp right there so there we were working doing some main public television stuff you were uh, I was guiding on the river um, and then you probably started to think about like getting into the film industry and like actually doing stuff on your own and you ultimately left main public television talk yeah, about that I sure, I sure did yeah there's a beautiful girl named Sarah who I followed to southern New Hampshire uh, so left my position at Maine Public and decided that um, I needed to find another job and I loved video production so much so that I wanted to stay in that industry. Um, I grew up with a big ski background uh, since a child so it was sort of no-brainer to uh, look in that field. As a result I bumped into uh, Dan Egan uh, who had a television Show. I think it was just Wild World of Winter at that time, which was regional. Um, and and then after working with him for a year, I said, you know, we ought to we ought to consider doing something in the summer. And then all of a sudden turned, um, you know, a winter show into a year round. Got to go to places such as South America to ski, uh, Valley Nevado, uh, Portillo, Chile. Uh, spent two or three weeks in France in February, uh, all across uh, the Rockies from Big Sky to Squaw. So uh, that was uh, a period of my life. And I, shoot, I was probably in my late 20s at that time. Um, talking, talk about just, I don't know, uh, an amazing opportunity to, to film in some of the, the cooler places of the globe. Um, with skis and then uh, like I said in the summer where we linked up with you uh, Mike to to start the summer show uh, I think you were hosting at the time uh, and I want to say our trip to Argentina was one of the first shows that we caught wasn't it uh, I don't I don't recall yeah I mean a lot happened at that time I mean I remember really just being friends with you when you were with the uh, main public and then going you know, and hanging out with you when you were working with Dan Egan, and you were busy. You had a lot of stuff. You had deadlines, and you had places to go, and you were doing a ton of production and editing work. And I think you really started to get fluent with using, um, you know, basically the tools of the trade. Dan yeah. Dan's uh, platform offered you the the chance to just like you you know you had deadlines like this show's got to be out. It's going to be out next week. We need to have this done. I mean, I was around you a couple times when you actually kind of came out of character and you were like, I, I got to really get on this, you know? And uh, that's not the Carter Davidson that the rest of us know, who's just totally like horizontal the rest of the day, you know? But uh, you also <laughs> no, got that... really, really good and cr crafty, yeah. 
that that time i think i think the commitment was 74 minutes a week that we had to produce shoot edit and then deliver every week yeah, because you're working with it. You're working with a network which demands that yeah. you have a product that you hand over to them, and you know they have sponsors, yeah. and there's money involved, and there's just it's not like making a film where you can decide that you can release it whenever you want. Right, right, yeah. Right. And, and think about that, right? Like 74 minutes a week to me even blows my mind. Like I can't believe that we did that uh, because a, a feature-length film is in the vicinity of 90 minutes, right? And we're doing close to that every every week. I mean, it was minimum twelve to fourteen hour days, and I can I can tell you we would cut a show, put it down, deliver it, and then then the next morning, I think I'm in the car at five a.m. driving to Sugarbush to meet somebody uh, to shoot something, uh, turn around, get home, do the same thing. So I think it was probably good for my life at that point because I, I was able to just get busy. Uh, and at the same time, Sarah was in the throes of law school. So we were just sort of both just crazy, uh, with work and, 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 uh, that part of our life. Yeah, absolutely. And so was it with, um, Dan Egan that you decided or had the brainchild to make a fishing film? No, the, the fishing film was something that was always in my back pocket that I knew that I wanted to do. Right, it was going to be just for me, and I think I even picked my company name long before that point. Um, yeah, that that was that was something just for me. It, it wasn't wasn't for anybody else. I I kind of wanted to go at it on my own. And you had an idea of what the first film would look like. Well, I did in the sense of I, I sort of wanted to mimic what the ski industry had established with uh, the ski films, you know, take matchstick productions or war Miller. Uh, and who's, who's the guy from Bridgeton that Maltese Flamingo, his name is escaping me at this moment. Malte, he did Maltese Flamingo. He did Blizzard of Oz. Oh, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Um, I'll think of it, but they, they had, do you know this, his name? This, ep this episode is about you, Carter, not him. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So, so where was I? Oh, you were just explaining your brainchild of how you wanted to, uh, you were teeing up to the one. You were you were about to explain oh. how you were thinking about the storyline and how the one was going to lay out. Right, so I was taking what, what the ski industry had been doing, and I said, it, it's a super sweet format. Why can't we do this for fly fishing? Uh, and for me, right, fly fishing was as exciting, if not more than skiing right it uh think of the places think of the people and so i knew that my roots were in maine uh and then staying focused in the region of new england uh, my approach was going to be let's tell our story here in the northeast and if possible and budget allowed um, we'll get out and stretch our legs and and do a remote uh, segment if we can make it work. Um, so the one which I think that title just was perfect for me anyways, because it was the first film 
uh, and everybody has their one, right? That was, that was the vibe. Um, when you look back or when I look back over the past 30 years of fishing, there might be a couple of ones. Um, and I can tell you right now, there's, there's a fish in Labrador that was an eight pound brook trout, uh, that ended up being my one today. And so that, that was the theme. That's where I wanted to go with it and, and tell, tell the stories of those who fish New England and what their one is. That was my ultimate goal. That was, that was my vision anyways. Yeah. And I'm thinking that you were trying to suggest that the one is like the one memorable experience or the one thing that opened the door for you or the one um, experience you had that really kept you, you know, on a guided path to continue with, with fishing and fly fishing especially. Yeah. It was the beginning. And then that was the other beauty part to it, right? To that title was, it was the first film, right? So why not? Why not make it number one? Exactly. So let's go through the um, let's go through the list. You uh, that's that was the very first one, and then there were four others, three others. Uh, we went the one, and then next year east by northeast, followed by the good life, which I was proud of. That one felt good, right? Like it took a couple of years to really get my feet underneath me, and that one felt good. Well, let's talk, you know, what made it feel good? Because that's, that's kind of like what, what this podcast is about is to explain how, you yeah. know, you had an idea, what, what did you want the good life to be? And how did it become what you wanted it to be in the end? How did you, how did it become the film that you thought it would, it might become? I, I, you know, I think I was able to just, I needed a couple of years to figure it out, right? Like, figure out where we needed to go, figure out how it was going to work, fig figure out how to write the narration and the shots that we needed um, to make a, the product that I had hoped to make. Um, we went to some of my favorite places in The Good Life, uh, Labrador being one of them. That was always, that segment was supposed to be called The Promised Land and because it was always on my bucket list, you know, of, of going to. Um, and, and not to, to fish, but to film and, you know, get up in the morning and get on a float plan and go to a place where somebody hadn't been to. Uh, and if they had, they certainly hadn't been to that year. So, so pieces like that just started to all come together. Um, it, it just, it felt like it was working. There are sponsors too. I mean, it's, it's never been about money. I can honestly say that, right? Like if you're looking to get into the fly fishing film scene and make money, um, don't. Don't. Yeah. Start with a million and get out after a year. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I was looking at the trailer uh, for The Good Life just recently and you're, you're you know, the, the uh, shots that you had with uh, outside of the plane, uh, the floats in the water. Um, just like mirror reflections of people in, in glass. And it's not just a camera pointed at a guy with a fish. It was just, it was, you had definitely stepped it up. And it was clear to me um, in looking at the trailer on that film that it was, you know, the little dialogue that happens behind the scene instead of just the punchline that you expect from, you know, so many. And, you know, but let's go back just for a second because I think what's also interesting is you were talking about making a parallel between ski films 
and um, and fly fishing films. And and before the time that you were starting to get into making fly fishing films, fly fishing films were mainly instructional. Uh, there weren't a lot of destination fly fishing films. Uh, like now, you know, you can get on YouTube and you can watch people like the Jensen's and they're out, you know, they're going to tell you what they're going to do and it's wonderful and the drone footage and there's so many more tools that people have now uh, for shooting that you didn't really have at your fingertips and you had to grasp at the technology uh, over the years that you were, you know, doing fly fishing films to just not only be on the front edge but also not lose touch with what other people were doing, right? Did, did you seeing, were you seeing things that other people were doing that you said, ah, I got to try that? Or did you see something sometimes and say, oh, I know how to do that better? Talk to me a little bit about like working as a producer, camera guy, you know, I, how, did, how did that evolve for you? I never wanted to be a camera operator. I, I, that was my least favorite piece of production. Uh, by default, I had to be in order to make it work, so I learned it. Uh, I love the edit. I love putting the story together. I love producing in the sense of who are we going to meet today? What, what are our logistics in order to make this uh, segment or film work? Who's our voice if we're going to do a narrate? Like putting all of the pieces together to make the, the end puzzle. I love that part. Um, and so shooting, I just had to do because no one else was going to do it. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I definitely remember that part of my early days saying, this is a slog. I mean, ma making sure you don't run out of batteries and you have plenty of tape because we were shooting on tape back then, not SD cards. Yeah, so exactly. I remember when we were in Argentina and we you you were shooting film then. And we had a bunch of it. You had boxes of of uh, basically film tapes, and we had to make sure batteries were all charged. Da 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 da. Now, I mean, and, and then even before then, back with main public uh, broadcasting, you know, you'd have a camera guy show up that had like a seventy five pound camera on his shoulder. And now where I work, we do high definition film with a gimbal or with an iPhone. That's even better quality. It's just crazy how easy it is now in comparison to what it was when I first met you and watched you in your element. Yeah, there was one uh, when I first made the switch from tape to, to digital and I bought one of those stupid heavy cameras. I still have it and it's for sale because I don't even want to look at it anymore. It's too heavy. I, I lugged that thing through a uh, better part of Labrador and New Brunswick producing the salmon documentary and i don't ever want to pick that camera up again today's technology is amazing i want to be right there i have a great idea for that camera you ready yeah yeah i think you should take the camera and put it in the back of the cj7 and when you park on a hill just throw it underneath the tire and then uh you know go do what you're going to do and come back and then just throw it in the back of the cj it's going to be perfect for that right because the e-brake doesn't work so we can use it as a chalk Exactly right. Yeah, like that's it. what the old the old Nikon people used to say. Like a Nikon camera is so tough that you can get out and throw it underneath the tire of the car while you go into the film shop to get your your film developed, and then come out and then shoot four more rolls with the same camera because they're that strong. Yeah, I like it. So Carter, uh, you know, to the point you just made, 
you know, you didn't like doing camera work. Uh, what was the thing that you liked? Was it production that you liked doing? I know naturally you're going to say, oh, I like working with the people. You know, everyone says that. But was it after you had stuff recorded, what was it that you liked to do? I'm guessing it's production. Let's let's just guess it's production. Yeah. Yeah, producing, making the film happen, I love. And I also love being in the edit which is just putting it together, right? Like being able to choose what soundbite and when you take it uh, into the timeline, uh, what soundtrack goes underneath it, the tempo um, of the segment, the tempo of the entire film, those decisions uh, and moves I just love and there's a there's a thousand ways to do it sometimes it just works out awesome and when it does you sort of celebrate that moment so um, I, I like being in the edit yeah one of your signature moves I noticed it when I was looking at that trailer for um, the good life is I'm gonna call it the machine gun where you do like 10 video clips inside of 10 seconds do you, do you know what I'm referring to Yep, yep, the rapid fire. The rapid fire is excellent. It's it just it drums up the enthusiasm of the audience. It drums up the excitement of what's about to follow from that. And it's almost like I think back in the old days they used to say that in films advertisers would like if you were watching a movie in the cinema they would like give you like one clip for one second of like a Coca-Cola can or something and you your mind would pick up on it but your eyes wouldn't pick up on it. It's like subliminal. Have you ever heard of this? I think so. Yeah, it was subliminal advertising is what they called it. But I almost it's almost like you're scratching at the door of that by doing the machine gun, you know, 10 shots in 10 seconds. It's like it just it, it makes your heart rate go up a little bit. It makes it exciting. So, um, yeah. yeah, so we're getting probably a pretty good to a pretty good spot to just take a break for a minute and um, come back after a little bit. I want to talk about your uh, your guiding more than your filmmaking, if you don't mind. What do you think of that idea, Carter? Yeah, I don't mind at all. I'd like to thank my sponsors, Jimmy Dean Sausage and Marlboro Light. Absolutely. We'll be right back. For this Flyline flashback, I want to share that I grew up in Mount Vernon, Maine, and learned to fly fish in the Belgrade Lakes region. In Don Wilson's book, Glimpses of Maine's Angling Past, Don shared this wonderful piece of Maine fly tying history. Mesolonsky Lake was the favorite water of Dr. J. Herbert Sanborn, who carried out many experiments here with the aid of his good friend Emile Letronel, brother of the famed newspaper outdoor columnist Gene Letronel. Emile Letronel developed the tandem streamer to eliminate short strikes. Sanborn developed a green, black, and white fly, which within the first few minutes of its first trial caught a four-pound brook trout landed by Gene Letronel. Not long afterwards, Sanborn was using the fly and hooked a salmon that gave him a long battle. It tipped the scales at 9 pounds, 3 ounces, and the fly was appropriately named the 9-3. Mesolonsky Lake also holds the state record for white perch, a 4-pound, 10-ounce fish taken in 1949 by Miss Earl Small of Waterville. And now let's return to the second part of our show. So, Carter, we talked about the front end of your film series that uh, you had done, the first couple, and 
let's go back a little bit and talk about the the end of uh, the the last few films that you did and what your your goals were. And I know that you started to really gain you know garner attention in the industry, and people were interested in getting you involved. Speak to me a little bit more about how that uh, became successful for you. Right, like like I was saying, the good life. I felt like I started to kind of get my groove a little bit, um, and I wasn't giving up just yet. I got into doing uh, the Atlantic Salmon documentary, Turning Tail, which was a, a full feature, full documentary uh, on Atlantic salmon here in uh, the Northeast, specifically from, geez, I think uh, Connecticut River all the way up to Greenland. One of my goals all along was to be accepted into any film festival and in this case the marquee for me was the fly fishing scene uh, so making that into making turning tail a short version into the fly fishing film tour was sort of the marquee for me like like that was an achievement that i was proud of um, that group coincidentally came from the ski world and the paddling world and and graduated into uh, the fly fishing scene, uh, for example, you heard me mention Warren Miller earlier on. The, the two owners of the fly fishing film tour at the time came from Warren Miller Entertainment. Um, so just to give you a sense of the product that they were putting out. So making it into that tour was just huge for me. Uh, and then the short film after Turning Tail, which was North Wild, shot fully in Labrador. We were going for landlocked salmon and found one found a lot of big brook trout but one landlocked salmon so it while we were in production shooting it started to become obvious that this might not be atlantic uh, landlocked salmon film that we're 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 going to be going off the grid for brook trout uh, so the ability to pivot uh, and find some remarkable uh, square tails along the way um, was part of that north of wild experience. Um, the George River, uh, five days I think we were, uh, fully off the grid. Um, and that short film, again, was, was accepted into the film tour. And that, it just meant a lot. It, it felt good to be on a national level with uh, a Grey Ghost production film, you know. It was, it I do, was, yeah, and and you had a guy, you had a kind of an old guy with a beard that was in in was it was it he was he in that one? I think he was right. Yeah, yeah. The, who who was that guy? Yeah, John Girak. Yeah, he was uh, never involved. never heard of him. Who was he? No, yeah, he's written a couple of books along the way. Oh yeah, well, just for the audience, John Girak is probably the most celebrated uh, fly fishing author that uh, is living today. So, Carter, how'd you meet him? How did that all go? I, I, I never asked you that, uh, and I think the audience would be interested to know. Like, how did you meet John Girac? Uh It was in Labrador. T technically, I first met him on the float plane dock in Wabush. I had driven twenty six hours straight and fell asleep in the parking lot at the float plane dock in Wabush, and at six fifteen in the morning. A guy knocked on my window while I was sleeping, and I, I rolled the window down. I said, hello, and, and he said, are you Carter Davidson? I said, I am. He said, are you going to Crossroad Lake? 
And I think I said, where's that? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And he said, Three Rivers Lodge? I said, yeah, I'm going there. He goes, well, float plane's leaving at 15. So, okay, I'll, I'll get right out. Roll up the window, and the guy traveling with me, I looked at him, I said, I, I think that was John fucking Gearock. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and it, and it sure was. So, yeah, he was in Turning Tail and also North of Wild. Um, and just a pleasure to hang with, to spend time with. He's, he's a remarkable man. Yeah, you hear nothing but the greatest uh, things said about him. He sounds like he's just a fantastic person. What a, what a, a gift that you could get him in front of the camera, and and the footage that you have of him is fantastic. And hopefully, the audience will take the opportunity to to see these films and see John uh, being filmed by Carter because that was pretty uh, special at the time. And I yeah. think it still will stand as a you know a wonderful testament to him. He's actually a guy that doesn't just write; he actually fishes, and he truly has a passion for it. Very cool. Uh, is there another film left in you? Do you think you're going to do another one at some point, or you putting down the camera? Or? No, there's there's still a camera, and the battery's probably pretty charged, at least well enough. And uh, I could go wheels up tomorrow if I wanted to. Um, I'm working on something, just on paper at the moment. I, I've always wanted to do something that crosses both the ski and the fly fishing scene. So there's a there's a little hint. Um, in the past, I don't know, handful of years, I've I've spent more time on whitewater, so there might be a way to add that into it. And then and then also, I've got two young, youngish children. I think at this point, uh, Addie, who's ten, and Miles, who's twelve or eleven. Addie's eleven. And twelve is miles, so I, I feel like they're a part of it. There's there's something with the family that makes me happy today. Um, so there might there might that might be another hint for you too. I love it. Yeah. So I you know you haven't heard the uh, the intro, but I do talk about the Grand Canyon uh, when I describe to the listeners who you are and some of the accomplishments that you've uh, you've made. Uh, did you guys bring a rod on the Grand Canyon? We did. Yeah. Yeah. Found some nice rainbow. Yeah, I did the canyon back in 89, and uh, I, I did fish. Uh, I think they told me that there was going to be sections where we'd be floating and there wasn't going to be a lot of white water on a couple of days, and um, we actually ate rainbow trout at night. I don't really you know, advocate for killing fish, but it's nice to have a fresh fish on a trip like that. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and we had, we had green water the entire way, so that was pretty special. So, uh, Carter, we share a mutual affection for drift boats. Let's talk about Eddie. Um, we kind of started off the segment about how you were building Eddie when you and I first met. Tell the audience who Eddie is and, and what Eddie became. Eddie is, well, I mean, I think the template was a 16-foot, but she she measures, I want to say, 15 and a half by gunnel, a wooden drift boat. Uh, I bought the blueprints from Tatman Boats out of Oregon, and I built her pretty close to 20 years ago uh, without owning a single tool. You have a buddy that has a commercial Adirondack chair business. Didn't you build the boat in his facility? Yep. Yep. I have friends in low places, Michael. I know. So, I, I met the guy. He's great. He's the one that gave us a ride to uh, to Logan so we could go to that's right. Argentina. Isn't that the same cat? Yeah. Scotty Maisie. Scotty too hotty. Uh, so I, I went into the build not knowing anything right? Uh, and came out of it 
knowing a little bit more than little. Yeah, she's she's a sweetheart. Um, predominantly been on the Androscoggin, a little bit on the Kennebec, uh, Penobscot Rivers. Uh, there's some really nice water here in Maine, but not all of it's drift boat water. Um, she's been up on the rapid uh, when we were guiding up there too. So yeah, 16 feet. Uh, I named her Eddie because of the character from the book, The River Why. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. By David James Duncan, which that book played uh, a huge, had a huge impact, I think, on me in my late 20s, mid 20s, late 20s. Um, so that just sort of seemed fitting. I've discussed purchasing a fiberglass boat for work and, and just haven't been able to do it uh, yet. And there's clients who really get upset when I put a motor on the back of an old wooden boat, such as Eddie, uh, thinking that it's 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 not it's not true. Like somebody shouldn't shouldn't do that to a wooden boat, but uh, she still gets around just fine. Yeah. Well. I love fishing out of that boat. It's beautiful. Something elegant about a wooden drift boat is, uh, you know, Bill Pierce says it looks like a Stradivarius floating down the river. So that's what your boat looks like, too, as well. It was fun to, uh, you and I kind of hooked up this last summer when I was playing with my drone and I was just flying around uh, you with your friends. Uh, You're just kind of having an an off day with uh, guide buddies. And um, it's just, it's beautiful. It's just, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see a wooden drift boat on the water and especially in Maine, it just really fits right in with the, with the background. But, um, the other thing I, you know, there's something, there's a lot of things I've never really asked you. And, and here's another one. Um, you are both a, a registered Maine guide and a registered New Hampshire guide. Correct. Yeah. And you know, that I know I can remember what the testing procedure was like to become a main guide. It was like, uh, if it was a test, I would have passed it immediately, but it was more like, it was really, really crazy. You know, all the questions coming out of anywhere and you could tell the, the wardens that were on the board were tough. What was your testing experience like both in New Hampshire and in Maine? Could you remember what those tests were like and who administered them? Oh yeah. I don't think I'll ever forget those tests. What's your about New Hampshire, I tested first, and at the time, it was a written only, roughly 100 questions, some multiple choice, some true false, but simple, right? You needed to study and you needed to have the correct answers, but there was no oral component. So super easy. Today's standards for New Hampshire are closer to Maine. In fact, it was modeled off of Maine with a a written and then a full map compass. Um, Lost person, but I think it's called something different. And, uh, you know, that whole oral component. So I I snuck into New Hampshire before they made that change. Uh, Guided for, I think, a couple of summers, very much part-time. And then I think it was my wife who said, you ought to just go get Maine. Um, that's where you want to be anyways. Um, so that test, I mean, talk about nerves. I remember stand, sitting in my truck in Augusta, waiting to walk in and just petrified of what I was walking into. Uh, map and compass, lost person scenario. Um, I got through map and compass pretty smooth. They sent you outside. Uh, to wait while they talk about you and I figured that was that right they were going to send me packing Um, and then they they brought me back in said okay good to go Uh, I don't remember any of the specific questions 
with the oral, but I just remember being fully intimidated by the entire scene and grateful to pass at the end of the day, right? Like, talk about achievements. The main guide being the marquee for guides in, in the testing land. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it, it's funny. When I was uh, working in the rafting uh, industry back in the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, I got invited to sit on the board and actually do testing in Greenville. And then later I got invited as a fishing guide uh, and master guide to sit on uh, a testing board in Augusta for um, the general wreck in fishing and, and hunting. And I remembered I decided going into it, I was going to say to the, the people that were the candidates to get their license, like, our goal is to have you pass this test. We want, we want you to, to get through this process successfully. And I only did that because I wish someone had said that to me uh, to just to kind of calm the nerves. Um, but, and I think it helped too. And, you know, I actually ended up testing someone that I knew and, um, I didn't give them any, you know, advantage or anything like that. I actually kind of sat back and just listened for the most part, but, uh, yeah, the testing procedure in Maine, Maine is recognized as having the most difficult uh, guiding test for, uh, of any country, yeah, of any, of any state in the country, I apologize. And, uh, and that's because the expectation for hiring a main guide should be that they're the best. And uh, that's why we celebrate that. And, and, you know, to that point, Carter, you know, once I book the trip with a client and I know that they're going to be coming on the 15th of June or whenever it is, um, you know, the, the, the days before, the night before, uh, I think about, like, you know, what do I got to do? Like, what's your pre-trip process like in planning and, and you know, like, loading the cooler? And, like, how, how do you communicate with your clients, like, Let's just speak to the people that are getting into guiding. Like, how do how do the, how do the real guys do it? Like, how do you do it? Uh, yeah. So first call is it's mostly trying to get a read on where we're going, who they are, what what their goals are. Uh, eventually, we'll get into the the like we'll choose the location. Although I was just I was just thinking about that the other day. Like, I feel like part of my one of my faults is that I have too many options that could be in play and i should just stay focused on on the one on the the right one where you know that i feel is the place that we should be going that's it that's what we're doing um i think i think far too often i give them too many options and then nobody knows how to decide and it's like it's like me and the kids trying to figure out what's what we're gonna have for dinner and you know you have too many options you're just not gonna eat so um, yeah, ab ab absolutely. I, I, I found that as I started to get more experienced, I, I would drive the conversation. Um, right. Not, not like in a way like I'm, I'm the guy that's in charge of this trip or, you know, you need to listen to me or any of that. It was more like I felt like if I was just really clear and like, this is where we're going to go. This is what we're going to do. This is when we're going to meet, um, you know, and then I'd always ask them like, what do you want to have happen on that day? Right. And then just shut my mouth and let them talk. Right. And you, I think I found that people will tell you what their expectation is if you give them a chance to do it. And and very often I learn, oh, I, I thought this guy wanted to go catch big fish. He actually just wants to learn how to cast better. He wants to learn more about knots or, you know, did, did you get that as well? Yeah. Or learn how to row a drift boat. You know, there's, there's a little bit of that too. So learn how to learn how to nymph. But you're right. I, I think driving the conversation in the sense of 
here's what I'm confident in for like, let's say we're going to, we're going to go for the Indrascog and here's what I'm confident in at this time of year. So this is where we're going to go. Um, and I'll be able to show you a good time in doing it. Um, so I, I think that sort of talks to that pre-trip piece. The rest just sort of sorts itself out in terms of um, when we're going to meet and what we're going to have for lunch. Um, do I need to do a shore lunch, a hot shore lunch? And if so, um, what are we going to have? Um, there's some really killer main guides out there that put on a beautiful lunch. Uh, and, and in all transparency, I've been on trips with guides who, uh, like in Oregon, for example, fishing the Deschutes, talk about a lunch, bottles of wine and yummy sourdough bread and, I mean, all of the fixing. So if a client wants that, then that's what we're going to do. You know, yeah, Tuki, Tuki did a really good job with that in Argentina, didn't he? He sure did. Yeah, and and that's that's a great example. And then there's there's some customers that, you know, they they want a rolled up sub. They don't even want to sit down. They want to have it, a fly rod in one hand and the sub in the other, and just fish for ten hours. I try to listen to what their expectations are and then deliver. Yeah, and I I even. I even steer the lunch, like what the lunch will be based on the, the, the itinerary. Like we're, we're going to be floating 12 miles. Well, we're not going to have two hours for lunch and, right. um, you know, that kind of thing. But just as a, as, you know, for, for the, the listeners at home, uh, the Megantic Club is an exclusive uh, fishing club up uh, north of Eustis. And uh, Megantic is actually a Native American word, which means you're going to have a two and a half hour lunch. Mandatory, mandatory. Exactly. So that's kind of like every every guide is a little bit different. Um, I think you and I are more like day runners. You might say, like, I'm not spending days on end with a client. I'm going to be with them for one day. So I want to hit the ball out of the park. I've been doing street tacos lately. That's been working out really well. Ooh. Just they're quick. Uh, everyone loves them. You don't feel like you ate too much at, at lunchtime, so that you're ready to take a nap after. And um, I think the whole thing is about easy. I want I want the lunch for me as the guy to be easy. It's just like it heated up quick. Everyone's eating within a few minutes. Uh, boom, bang, back in the boat. Here we go. Um, what's your What's your favorite lunch to do? So on a cold fall day, that's probably wet. Either uh, mom's chicken noodle soup or a beef stew if I have time. And that could be hot in a thermos, and then we just make it work, or or bring a burner and, and heat it up. There, there's something that brings you back to life when you get something warm, mini on a cold day. Yeah, when we when Sherry and I fish in the fall, we we have a little single burner, and we always bring a soup. And she does a she does she makes a great uh, she makes a great beef stew, which is perfect. It really sticks to your bones, as you say. So, yeah. um, and don't forget those times when we were guiding in up on the rapid. Those were 18 hour days breakfast lunch dinner and all of the fishing in between like talk about long days yeah and i you know guiding now on the rapid um of course i don't do much of it anymore but uh i do guide on the rapid but i really guide one guy and we've figured out that the science there is that you you fish hard in the morning until around 10 and then you take your waders off and you take a nap and relax and you have a light lunch and then you pick back up at four and by then, the guys on the mountain bikes are all, they've all left because the sun was straight overhead and they're all worn out. They didn't bring enough water. 
and the river clears out and we fished, you know, till dark. And, uh, but yeah, every trip's different. Yeah, certainly yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the rapid. What's your first memory? What's your first memory going into the rapid? My first memory of the rapid. So I painted houses in Bethel, Maine in the summers when I was in college for two or three years. And the boss, his name was Vernon Davis. And I said, and we called him Haas. And I said, Haas, I'm tired of fishing the Andro. Where do I need to go to catch a brook trout? He gave some line of, you got to go to the Rapid River. So I found it on the Gazetteer and then got completely lost uh, trying to find my way in there. Like so far lost that I probably shouldn't have even found it. But I did. And I think by the time I got in there, it was one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And I had started in the morning. I walked down into Lower Dam, uh, started walking down River Left, ended up crossing uh, that small channel over onto the island just below Wing Dam in that beautiful old-growth forest. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Big old hemlocks in there. And a young spring fawn jumped out from behind one of those big hemlocks and scared the living heck out of me to the point where I think I fell over backwards. I did not know that. Now, it's funny you say that. I bet that there's a doe, she's probably 15 years old, that puts a fawn on that island every year because I have the story you just told, I can tell the same story. I had the exact same thing happen, waded across to the island by the big rock, the big boulder below Wing Dam, Walk down into the island, and you know it's it's rough down through there. There's trees down. There's rocks everywhere. There's boulders, and this little spotted Bambi jumps up and ran like a, a Kawasaki Ninja 750R through the woods and like bleeding, blah 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 blah, running away. And I was like, oh crap, shit! I didn't mean to. Go. Where's your mom? You know. And I think I think what they do is they plant their fawns there because they know that the coyotes won't go out onto the island. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's safe. Isn't that fun? Yeah, it's funny we both had that experience. And, uh, you know, they say don't ever touch or get near. You see a fawn like that, it's fine. Leave it alone. The mom's uh, not far away. She's just taking a break and getting some food. So that's the the takeaway from that experience. But, um, yeah, Carter, well, I mean, what else could we talk? We could talk forever. We really could. Don't you agree? I do, yeah. We haven't talked about Patagonia, which. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) One of the, the most iconic adventures on a fishing scene, at least for me, that was what a killer trip. Yeah, so lo, uh, let me let me set the, the the backdrop for the audience. So uh, Carter's working for Danny again. Um, the ski industry down in Argentina is trying to promote uh, alternative activities other than just uh, skiing, and so they're trying to promote uh, fly fishing. And the Nukin region, which is uh, really kind of the wine country just below Mendoza. Uh, is the place it's kind of like what would be the equivalent carter jackson hole um what would what would the audience recognize as a place in the united states that would be equivalent to san martin de los andes de los andes yeah i'd say jackson hole with the snake river there although i haven't been to sun valley it would be along those lines too uh, you know any, anything idaho or montana based i think would be a good fit you basically you're in a town where you've got five to seven major watersheds flowing through drainage basins, and every one of them is full of five to ten pound 
fish. And I remember that was our challenge. It was so funny when we first uh, showed up there. We were we were filming, you know. So you had you know had sticks and cameras rolling, and we were going out and trying to catch fish on camera. Uh, we were going to promote uh, the off season, uh, you know, fly fishing for the ski community. And we got hooked up with the number one guide, Tuki Viscaro, Carlos Viscaro. And uh, this guy had the drift boat. He had the lodges. I mean, we went to, they they rolled it all out, man. Don't you agree? Yep, yep. Uh, beautiful wine, amazing cuts of steak and beef, uh, huge brown trout. One of my most favorite shots of all time was you standing on a boulder that is surrounded by water casting over a barbed wire fence this is how high the river was when we were there and hooked up into i don't know four or five pound brown trout that was just gorgeous and all of that i have the sequence like to prove the point of like you legitimately caught a fish while casting over a barbed wire fence and then had to climb the barbed wire fence in your waders to land the fish. It was just one of my most favorite shots of all time. Now, growing up on a farm in Mount Vernon, Maine with barbed wire fences taught me the skills to jump over it. And I think really what's also being said is we were there in November, which is, you know, because you're in the other hemisphere, that's actually their springtime. Uh, that's our fall, but that's their spring. So the, uh, the glaciers were melting, the water was high and uh, the fish were chasing black woolly buggers. I think that seemed to be the fly that we just tied on, and we would put on 0x tippet, you know, whatever pound 0x is, I don't know, 14 pound. 16, I think it was 16 pound. And they just, you could do no wrong, and there were fish behind everything that you thought there should be a fish behind, and we fished the Mageo, we fished the uh, Shimmywin a lot, and um, uh, the Kujinkura and uh, a couple of other rivers that I can't recall the name now. Or Illuminae. I can't even pronounce them. Illuminae, yep. And that yeah, was a great trip. It was fantastic. And, of course, the reason <clears throat> that we were there for so long is we were really supposed to be there for a fixed amount of time. But you recall there was an airline strike. Yeah, we, we couldn't. The, the flights coming out of on international were open, but we just couldn't get to an airport large enough. To get to that flight so um, we were stuck and I, I remember panicking yeah um, you know having been on the road for 10 14 days something like that panicking of am I am I going to be stuck in Chile or sorry um, Argentina for you know for the rest of my life yeah, we had a conversation. I actually had to grab you by the, the sleeve. So uh, we they, so okay. Trips end. We're supposed to leave. Um, Tuki takes us down to Bariloche. Is it Bariloche? Is that Bariloche. where we went? Yeah. Yeah, and we're down there, and we walk into the uh, local airline office. Uh, it's not the airport. It's just the office where you go to check in. And the the, the nice Argentine woman there is explaining very kindly that the flights aren't going out. You won't. We don't know, and the whole thing. And and you start losing your shit. And, and, uh, and Tuki's like, you know, I mean, this guy's a pro. He's like, well, we can go back to the lodge and fish for today and tomorrow and come back on Thursday. And, and you start, you start going like old school on him. You were pissed. And I like grabbed you by the collar and hauled you out on, I remember it like it was yesterday. I hauled you out on the, on the sidewalk and I said, I know you have something to produce for Dan Egan. It ain't going to happen. 
let's go fishing. Yep. And we and we did, and I was delighted. I had at that at that point in my life, I was like, pinch me, I'm in heaven. I don't need to leave this place anytime soon. Nothing takes priority over what this experience is uh, producing for us, and uh, we continue to. Right. I know. I know. I know. It. It like it. It's crazy to me that that I didn't just settle right into that saying, "Great, let's stay another week." Because I'll tell you right now, Mike, if, if given that opportunity again, I would applaud an airline strike to be stuck there for 24 hours or another 24 days. Uh, you, you can't get that back. No, and we, we really enjoyed it. And I remember the craziness is that we actually ended up getting, I ended up getting, no, we both got a domestic flight to Santiago, Chile, which was not part of our original t- itinerary. And uh, I ended up, there was like one seat left. I was on um, whatever they call it in the airline industry, standby, and all of a sudden they said, we have one seat, and you and I, and, and Dan, Dan was actually there because he was sailing, and we all looked at each other, and Dan looked at me, and he said, Mike, get on that plane, and I flew back into uh, JFK, not knowing when you guys were going to come behind me, and right. And, you know, the other part of it is I didn't – all my other flights I'd missed, so I didn't know that I had an airline ticket anymore to get back to Maine. And as I flew in that morning to JFK, uh, you arrived at, like, you know, ass crack early in the morning, 5 o'clock, whatever. I'm in the line to go through uh, customs, and I've got my bags and everything, and, you know, the, the customs people are all standing around. And this guy leans up to me, and he whispers in my ear, standing Right in there is Lars Ulrich from Metallica. Did I ever tell you this? You did, yeah. Yeah, so I'm I, – and I look. And, of course, you know me. I'm, I'm a guitarist. I'm a metal guy. I love that stuff. And I look, and there's Lars Ulrich. had just cut his hair short. He's wearing a baseball hat. He's got a black backpack. He's got a black leather jacket on. He's standing dead in front of me. So I go through customs. And, you know, you got your shoes off, you got your belt off, you know, you got your laptop, what, I don't know, whatever we had at the time. And I'm standing next to him and I look at him and I said, I hate to do this, man. And I really am sorry, but I love to have your autograph. And he looks me straight in the eye, big smile, slaps me on the shoulder with his open hand. And he says, no problem. And he, I still to this day have an incredible Lars Ulrich. He wrote, Talica on it. <laughs> Lars Ulrich, Talica, apostrophe Talica. So uh, that was that kind of made me start to feel good about getting back to the United States. But man, I'll never forget the trip to Argentina. That was just killer. And that's what we put into the one. So if you want to watch one of Carter's films, um, I would start with that one. What, so, question for you What was your favorite location or moment or shot even from that trip? Do you, do you recall? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I think the thing that was going on for me um, is you and I had already started doing some filming together, and you were always trying to get the whoever the the person with, was that we were working with to have some enthusiasm, you know, like put a smile on your face, you know, act excited, you know, do whatever. Well, this guy Tuki, you know, we're catching you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty inch brown trout, and I finally had to say to him, "Look, Tuki, when we catch one of these fish, you got to act like this is real." And it, uh, okay, all right, all right. So we were kind of going down, I think it was the middle section of the Shimmywin, and he says, I want to roll the boat up into this spring creek. It's usually a big, big fish in this spring creek. So we rowed the boat up, and it's just kind of like pond water with, you know, kind of a 
tributary flowing into it, he says, you know, throw that cast all the way across and see if something takes it. And we caught a monster. And of course, it's in the film. It's a gigantic brown. And he becomes animated for the first time. Do you remember this? I sure do. Yeah, that's that's probably the one shot that turned it around because, and he said, now that's an Argentine brown trout. And uh, he, he everything else was just a little skipper to him. To you and I, they were beautiful. I mean, 20-inch brown trout's a gorgeous fish. But to him, he wanted to see a 26-inch fish put in the net. And that's uh, we were finally able to accomplish that. And the other thing that I really like, too, is that section of the Magee or Red Gate, that was oh, probably so one of the most beautiful. beautiful places I've ever been on Earth. And yeah. the Native American... Uh, South American uh, artifacts, and we remember seeing the red stag. Gorgeous. That was, yeah. I mean, that's private water. That's at um, Santa Berto Lodge, uh, Macheo River. Uh, if you had one place to go in Argentina, that probably wouldn't be a bad place to go, especially if you like to walk around in waders. I agree, Carter. It's been just such a pleasure to talk to you about this. It brings back a ton of memories. Uh, it means so much that you're willing to help with the project, and hopefully the. Uh, the audience will be able to get a little takeaway of what it's like to listen to a guy that actually spent uh, his career, uh, you know, getting into the, the fly fishing film industry. And um, I think that you're just a fantastic person. You're one of my favorite humans, and you've brought so much pleasure to my life. And you're always welcome in my boat as long as you're rowing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we like to, <laughs> for those that don't know us, uh, we always uh, shift off. I'll, I'll, I'll catch a fish, Carter will catch a fish, and we just row. And uh, that's the way it rolls with us, right? That's right. you got to play baseball. Three strikes or a hit, and then you switch it out. Carter, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your contributing to the podcast, and uh, I think that's a wrap. All right. You're doing good. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'd love to hear you say that. I love the uh, positive enthusiasm. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline podcast is a product of Riverside FM. Mm-hmm.